If you would, open to John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 24 to 29. Our study this morning will focus on verses 27 through 29. I begin in verse 24. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ before the Sanhedrin, the religious Jewish leaders of the day. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your church. We ask this morning that you'll prepare our hearts, open our minds to receive that which you would have for us this morning. May we feast upon the word. May we walk out of here with a greater understanding of that which is yet future. May we walk out of here more grateful for which that has been, which has been accomplished on our behalf at the cross. And for anyone who remains here today, Lord, yet spiritually dead, May you bring them into the family of God by your mercy and by your grace. Regenerate them today and breathe spiritual life into them. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The subject at hand is God's judgment. Judgment in the sense of permanence, where the solidity of his final judgment will establish a permanent distinction between all of mankind. Some will enter into the fullness of life, whereas others will enter in, as the Bible says, into eternal death. Ceaseless damnation, or as the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, everlasting torment. No one spoke more about hell than the Lord Jesus Christ. You can put all the prophets together. Christ exceeds them all in regard to eternal damnation. Now, to bring you up to date to the context of the passage... We go back to John chapter 5, verse 1 and on. Jesus entered into the pool of Bethesda where there was a multitude of lame, paralyzed people laying around. He walked up to one man. He asked that man, do you want to be made well? The man said, there's no one to throw me in the water. For when the angel comes down and stirs up the water, there's no one to throw me in. There was a superstition of that day when, when, when water would... <clears throat> come from the springs, they would, it would insurge upon the pond and the pool would bubble up and they thought it was an angel stirring the water and he believed that to be the first one in the water was to be healed. Jesus went on to command the man, he said, rise, take up your bed and walk. The man stood up, he took up his bed, he walked. He was confronted by the Pharisees. The Pharisees asked him and they inquired as to why he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath. 
If you notice in John chapter 5, verse 16, it says, For this reason, the reason being the healing of that man, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now from verse 17 on through the rest of John chapter 5 is Jesus Christ's discourse of deity declaring equality with the Father. He declares equality with the Father. In verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, verse 18, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. So, it was enough in their mind to kill him and pursue him for breaking the Sabbath, for healing a lame man on the Sabbath, let alone claiming equality with the Father. To claim equality with the Father is to claim yourself as being God. And what Jesus does is he goes through here. Now, he doesn't retract when they accuse him. He, he pursues. He goes in deeper and deeper, claiming more and more as to the reality of his deity. He said in verse 19 that he was equal in will to that of the Father. In verse 20, he was equal in omnipotence. Omni, omnip, omniscience. Wow. Think of omnipotence, omniscience. You get those mixed up and you'll be messed up. In omniscience, all-knowing, all-powerful God, omniscience is all-knowing, that he's equal with the Father, with infinite insight, infinite awareness. In verse 20, that he has sovereign privilege, just as the Father does. In verse 22, that he's equal with the Father in divine judgment. In verse 23, he's equal to the Father in honor. Jesus then moves on to declare that it is only He that can grant anyone everlasting life. Verse 25, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will what? Will live. They will live. This is spiritual resurrection. In the future day of judgment, there are only two distinct groups that will be judged. There's two roads. There's the broad road that leads to destruction. There's the narrow way that leads to everlasting life. And that gatekeeper is Jesus Christ. He's the only way. God is supreme over both groups. For it is only God that is supreme over all things. Now if you remember, when Moses was instructed by God as he stood before the burning bush to go to Egypt to bring God's people out of bondage, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, the response of Moses was he was so frightened by such a thought, he inquired of the Lord and he asked, when I, when I say to them that the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God's response is one of the most important revelations ever given to man. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God says my name is I am. Over 1,500 years later, Jesus would stand before the same religious hypocrites of his day and in John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
the never beginning, never ending, never becoming, never improving, I am. As John Piper says, I quote, he is simply and absolutely there to be dealt with on his terms or not at all. Whether we want him to be there or not, he is there. It is God who defines reality. When we come into existence, we stand before a God who made us and owns us. We have absolutely no choice in the matter. We do not choose to be. And when we are, we do not choose that God be. No ranting and raving, no sophisticated doubt or skepticism has any effect on the existence of God. He simply and absolutely is, I am that I am. If we don't like it, we can change for our joy or we can resist to our destruction. But one thing remains absolutely unassailed. God is. He was there before we came. End quote. He created all that is. He sustains all that is. He sustains every life form. He directs the course of all events and he will execute final judgment on all because a Rom- Romans 11.36 says, For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. Now our study of verses 27 to 29 this morning present for us great, three great truths. The first is that death is not the end of existence. Secondly, there are two forms of existence beyond the grave. And thirdly, the particular kind of existence beyond the grave is dependent upon whether or not the individual has experienced the spiritual resurrection of verse 25, which is a personal living relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything after verse 25 is dependent upon verse 25 and what we'll look at today. So the obvious conclusion today is that each person must examine himself in regard to relationship that they claim to have with Jesus Christ. Many people claim to know Christ, but the question is, does he know them? Jesus said in John 10, verse 27, My sheep, what? Hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. You've heard his voice only if you're following him. If you're following him, it's proof that you've heard his voice and that he was speaking to you in the first place. If not, he doesn't have a relationship with you any more than your favorite celebrity has a relationship with you through your television screen. There are many a Sam and Susie wannabes that claim to know certain celebrities. Amen? You ever met anyone who claims to know a famous person? And you get close to that famous person, you go, hey, introduce me. And the celebrity looks at him like, who are you? You go knock on the celebrity you claim to know. You go up to Hollywood Hills, knock on their door. And they'll look at you and say, what do you want? I don't know you. And then they'll pick up the phone and they'll likely call the police. Amen? Many times people claim to know certain celebrities because they know so much about their lives. They know so much about their personality. They know so much about their mannerisms. They know so much about what they're doing and what they're working on, who they're working with, and so on. There's great familiarity with that individual. But yet that individual, that celebrity, doesn't know them. The same is true for the many who claim to know Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. 
Many a Sam and Susie wannabe will cry out to enter into heaven only to hear the words of Jesus Christ, the great I am, as he says in Matthew 7.23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there's only two groups of people in the world. Throughout all of time, the true followers of the great I am and the runners from the great I am. Two groups. Those that have come to the light and live in the light and those who remain in darkness. Those who receive life and those that are yet self-condemned. Unbelief is condemnation. So in part three here, over the last few weeks, we look at verses 27 to 29, we see the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Verses 25 to 29 reveal four points in regard to the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. Point number one, we looked at weeks ago, it's in review here in your bulletin. It's Jesus Christ who speaks to the spiritually dead in verse 25a. Now notice, this whole study today is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Son of Man. If we come to the text to see God as who He is, it ex exalts Him, and what does it do to us? It lowers us into a place of greater humility under the sovereign, holy God of the universe. Point number two that we looked at was Jesus Christ is the one who grants life to the spiritually dead. Verse 25b. Point three was Jesus Christ the only life, who is the only life source of the dead and the living. In other words, He's the only one that can grant eternal life and He's the only one that grants abundant life now. If you have everlasting life, your life ought to be abundant. Abundantly filled with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Fruits of the what? The Spirit. Hope. Hope. So Jesus has spoken of the initial gift of life in which a person becomes a believer, enabled by the grace of God to hear and respond to the living, active what? Word of God. So Jesus has already spoken of the life graced to the believer in the present, and now he returns to the future. As he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Now, according to verses 27 to 29, the life that is given to the believer at the moment of regeneration will have its true end and in total will, by, will, will come by the way of the entrance in, into life through the resurrection. That's the finality of it all. And those who've experienced spiritual resurrection here on earth, if you're a Christian, you've experienced verse 25. You've been spiritually resurrected. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins. Amen? Ephesians chapter 2. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus. So what is the life that we who believe in Jesus Christ possess today? What is that life? It is the life of God himself. It is the life of God Himself that resides in you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and what? Godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You are partakers. I am a partaker of the very divine nature of God. His life in you. That life is an eternal life. It's as indestructible as God himself is. You will not die one precious second prior to that which has been preordained for you. God will accomplish his will in and through your life. He's the one who gives spiritual and abundant life. And he will be the ultimate judge of life eternal. And that leads us to the point, the fourth point, in regard to the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. That was review. That brings us to point four. Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. So in this fourth point, we see three subpoints. They're outlined in your bulletin. Subpoint number one, we will look at the executor of judgment. Secondly, we will see the recipients of judgment. And thirdly, we'll see the two destinies of the judged. First, the executor of judgment, verse 27. Actually, I'll read in verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. These are the words of Christ. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now, as the Father has administered life in himself to the Son, verse 26, so also he has given him authority to judge. Now, this authority has been granted, the, the authority to judge has been granted to Christ because he's the Son of Man. So, what does Jesus mean that he has authority because he's the Son of Man? Notice, verse 25, that life-giving ability is granted to the Son because he's the Son of who? He's the Son of God. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will what? Live. So life-giving power has been administered to the Son because He's the Son of God. And here we see that He's given the authority to judge as the Son of Man. As the Son of Man. Jesus is qualified to be judge of human beings because He Himself became a human being. He's the Son of God who lowered Himself to become like you, to become like me, a human being. And therefore has been administered judgment of all mankind. See, by becoming a man, he understands how we live. He understands how we feel. He understands that which we face on this earth. He sees and understands and can relate to that which you and I face here in a fallen, sinful world. He did it, yet he did it without sin. He completely understands our condition. He's been tempted in every way that we have yet without sin. And as a man, he experienced hunger, pain, suffering, poverty, grief, and finally, death. Of which we will all partake in one day. Death. And he conquered it. And because he's fully human as well as fully God, he has the, the right to judge righteously. He's the executor of all judgment. Therefore, the Father's committed judgment to the Son because he is the mediator between God and man. He's the intercessor. He stands between man and God as man to restore a broken relationship back in the garden and he at the same time stands as God before man. So Jesus came as a man and as God to restore the relationship between man and God and between God and man. It was broken in the garden. 
the righteous judge. Now we see this in the vision of Daniel. We see that final judgment is to the one like the Son of Man. Daniel 7.13, it says, I was watching in the night visions. And behold, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now this very passage out of Daniel, Jesus refers to regarding himself in Mark chapter 14. And the result of that was that the religious leaders again accused him of blasphemy. Mark 14, 61, again the high priest asked him saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And he goes on to say, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of a witness? You have heard the blasphemy. So the title Son of Man is generally used only by Jesus concerning himself. And as Son of Man, he's qualified to judge humanity because he belongs to it. He understands the needs and the position of man. Jesus knows all men. And you know what else he knows? He knows the secrets of men's hearts. Jesus knows what's in a man, John chapter 2, if you remember that. He knows what's in a man. No one can hide from him on judgment day. Every motive will be revealed. No one can say, I didn't know. He is the righteous evaluator of those that have come to the light, as well as those that have rejected the light. Two groups. You've either come to the light and rest in the light and walk in the light, or you run from the light and reject the light. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce writes, and I quote, When he comes, there is a discrimination or a separation between those who welcome the light and those who shun it. The former receive life, the latter are self-condemned. He does not come to condemn the world. His desire is that the world may be saved, but the effect, if not the purpose, of his coming is the judgment of those who will not receive him. Moreover, the judgment which is being determined now will be finally promulgated or publicized on a coming day. End quote. So then, the judgment of God is rooted in the judgment of God who became a man. He has every right to judge. And Jesus will judge in perfect fairness, having become a man. And at the same time, when he comes, he will make his enemies his footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The executor of judgment is Jesus Christ. How many times do you share the gospel with someone and they say, well, Jesus didn't judge. Jesus didn't judge. He's been given all judgment. He is eternal judge. He's the only judge. He came and took the judgment of the Father. He took the wrath of the Father and therefore has, was, it has been administered to all judgment of all the earth of all time. Of everyone that has ever lived. Now, this psalm here, Psalm 110, this is King David referring to his son or offspring. Through the messianic line of David would come the Christ. Through the line of David is the messianic line, which the fulfillment thereof is Jesus Christ. 
And we see this fulfilled in Mark chapter 12, verse 35, when Jesus asked the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is Jesus claiming to be the fulfillment of Psalm 110. Now, a footstool was known as a place of disgrace, symbolizing defeat. And warriors and military leaders of the Near East would humiliate their defeated foes by placing their foot on the head or the neck of their enemy as they laid on the ground. And their head became the champion's footstool, a sign of victory. Jesus is the judge of all mankind. He's the sole executor of all judgment. Acts chapter 10 verse 42 says that he, Jesus, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, who was ordained by God to be the judge of all the living and the dead. Acts 17.31 He has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. If Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, we'd have no reason to meet here today. Amen? He would have proven to be a fraud. But he is indeed the Christ, the risen Christ, the one and only Son of God, the Son of Man, who will execute judgment on all of mankind. 1 Corinthians 15.25 For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is what? Death. The consequence of sin is death. It must be exhausted. And then we see in John chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to, to the Son. The executor of judgment, final judgment, eternal judgment, is Jesus Christ. Sovereign judge, sovereign ruler. So Christ is the only one by whom the world will be judged. And this is where everyone ought to be critically concerned. Particularly those who claim to know Christ as Sam and Susie Wannabe claim to know their celebrity friends. Many people make this profession. It is our duty, brothers and sisters in Christ, to proclaim the true gospel. Not this watered-down gospel light business. Light spelled L-I-T-E. We're to give the gospel light, L-I-G-H-T, amen? The true gospel that illumines the minds and the hearts of people. The living word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not your ideas and my ideas. The word of God. There's people in your lives, there's people in my lives that are bound for hell. They're on the road to destruction. We must proclaim the truth that was revealed to us by God's grace. May we not water it down. So my question to all of you here today is, have you been resurrected from spiritual death? Have you experienced chapter 5, verse 25? Have you been resurrected from spiritual death and damnation? From the victimization of the very sin nature which you were born with? That nature must be born again. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Amen? That nature must be changed. You can't change it. I can't change it. Only He can change it. Have you been radically transformed like that? Many professing Christians today are seeking the hand of God rather than the face of God. They're not drawing upon His person and power but only living for personal provision. 
their prayer life consists of creature comforts rather than the deep soul work that conforms us to the image of Christ. Many professing Christians lack a desire for holiness, but they constantly expect worldly happiness. They don't submit to His majesty, but rather expect God's magic wand to grant them the wishes of life here on earth. It's not holiness. It's not a hunger and thirsting for righteousness. It's not a desire for purity of heart. It's not a desire to grow in holiness. It's not a desire to gain the knowledge of Jesus Christ through His written word. Many people who profess Christ desire the same things that the world desires. They never see themselves as a slave to the master, Jesus Christ, but rather they see themselves to the they see themselves as a master of Christ. God, I need you to do this for me. I need you to do this for me. Grant me this, grant me that, grant me this, grant me that. I need, I need, I need. What about Bob? You ever see that movie? I need, I'm needy. So, believers, if you profess Christ, do you live as someone who's been raised from spiritual death? You were bound for hell, deserving nothing less, but you were, greatest, you were granted the greatest acquittal that there is. We've been granted abundant grace. Forgiven, once and for all and forever. May we live as such, Amen. Because He is the executor of all judgment, Jesus Christ. Your sin has been judged if you're in Christ. It was laid upon Him. The wrath of God was unleashed upon the Son. And you are declared free from all blame. That's justification by faith. Declared free. May we live like we've been declared free from all blame. Amen? And then Christ's church will be holy. And then the world will be able to see the church as the light and say, man, what do they got? Because they don't look like us out here. See, if you try to make the church setting like this, very worldly, just to get masses in, that's not the church. It's not the church. It's just a reflection of the world. We're people out of the culture that have been supernaturally transformed by the supernatural work of God. And when God begins to do a soul work in the lives of lost people, they will see souls that have been changed and they'll want that truth. The Holy Spirit will draw them to you. And then you'll be able to proclaim this gospel rather than Jesus loves you and wants to be your friend. Amen? The true gospel. So we move from the executor of judgment to sub-point number two, the recipients of judgment. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice. All in the graves will hear. So we understand this is the doctrine of the literal, physical resurrection. Again, verse 25 refers to the first resurrection. Regeneration. Where the spiritually dead are raised. Notice in verse 25, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. He's referring to that transforming work. The resurrection of the dead spirit. He said, the hour is coming and now is. So, you, you had that work already revealed as he was transforming lives right then and there through his earthly ministry. We saw a greater fulfillment of it at Pentecost. And then we saw even 
well, we saw the first fulfillment of it at the death and resurrection of Christ, and then at Pentecost. And we've seen that work that's been ongoing throughout time. You are a participant of it, and I've been a participant of it by His grace. I should say a partaker of it. His grace. The hour is coming and now is. Now in verse 28, he does not say the hour is now, but rather, this is a future hour. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. He didn't say the hour now is and is coming. He says the hour is coming. This is a future event. A futuristic event. This future hour. Everybody who's ever died, regardless of where they've been buried, whether they drowned, whether they were cremated, whether they were blown apart in war, deteriorated in the desert, ravaged by wild beasts, all will be raised by the omnipotent, all-powerful call of Jesus Christ. Now, if God made man from the dust, made him out of dust, it'll be nothing for him to raise him from the dust, Amen? Regardless if he's been drowned in the depths of the sea or blown apart, like I said, it doesn't matter. He will raise all from the dead. There will be a literal, physical resurrection. And regardless of whose voice the individual listened to on earth, whether it was Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, or their own personal Jesus, how many times have you heard people say, well, my Jesus wouldn't judge, or my Jesus is like this. No one has a personal Jesus. Your personal Jesus better be my personal Jesus, and our personal Jesus better be the Jesus of the Bible. Amen, brothers? Come on now. Come on now. No personal Jesus. If he's dissimilar to the Bible, you have a personal relationship with the living Christ of the universe who's revealed through Scripture. That's the Jesus we all better be serving. But regardless of what voice people in this future, re future resurrection listen to, they will respond on that day to His voice. Some will be raised to everlasting joy. Some to everlasting torment. The people who worship the God in the mirror, small g, and that's the only voice they listen to, they will rise up when they hear the voice of Jesus Christ. And he will judge the secrets of men's hearts. So John emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the door to the eternal world. The recipients are the dead of all ages, the power of which is Jesus Christ, who is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So all who have died, both the righteous and the wicked, will receive bodies for the future life. The body that you dwell in today is a body that is not fit for heaven. That body will go to the grave. Your spirit, if you're in Christ, will be with the Lord. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. So if you die this afternoon, I mean, I hope to see you this week, but may God's will be done. If one of us were to pass this afternoon, if you're in Christ, you would go be with the Lord. Your body will go to the grave. You die outside of Christ, it's kind of like a precursor to hell. It's kind of like going to county jail before you get a life sentence in prison. You're going to do time. do the same type of time. It's just not finalized yet. And at the physical resurrection, there'll be resurrected bodies to be put back with the Spirit, and they will be fit for either eternal bliss or eternal torment. But these bodies are not fit for either. They go to the grave. Apparently, each body is going to express the character of the person who's resurrected, as we'll see in verse 29. 
But we must approach this doctrine, the doctrine of the physical resurrection, as we do with all other doctrines, and that's by way of the Word of God. Amen? By the way of Scripture. So we go back to the Old Testament. Job 19, of all antiquity, of all ancient writings in, in the Bible or out of the Bible, Job is the oldest written document known to man. Or at least it was up until a couple years ago, as far as I know. And here's the words of Job. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. We all know the suffering of Job, amen? We all know the suffering that, that he had to take upon himself by the sovereign hand of God. Job didn't know what was going on in that situation, amen? It was God who initiated that, God who allowed that. He allowed Satan to inflict the life of Job. And Job, in the midst of suffering, trusted in God and the future resurrection. In Psalm 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, the immediate application of that psalm, Psalm 16, is to David and the Old Testament saints. He's referring to the immediate threat of death. But he's pointing prophetically to the Son of David, who is who? Who is Jesus Christ. Christ the anticipated Messiah. Now, Peter and Paul recognized this, and it was Jesus who was the fulfillment of that psalm, and you can read that in Acts chapter 2 or in Acts chapter 13. But we'll stay in the Old Testament for a bit. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. See that hope? The hope that these Old Testament saints had? So here we have a very clear prediction of the bodily resurrection of the godly and the ungodly for final judgment. The executor of which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the New Testament, we read of the blessed hope of the believer. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is where? Heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able, able even to subdue all things to Himself. Now in Matthew chapter 22, you remember Jesus had a, uh, well he had many disagreements with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Sadducees one day approached him. Now the Sadducees were different than the Pharisees in that the Pharisees did believe that there was a future physical resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a physical resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see, amen? No hope. Now we read of Jesus' interview with the Sadducees in Matthew 22. And they approach him and they asked him about a man who was married to a woman. He says, you know, what if a man is married to a woman and he dies? 
And then that man's brother goes on and takes his wife for himself. And then he dies. And then the third brother and so on marries her all the way through seven brothers. They asked him, in the resurrection, whose wife is she? And Jesus answered in Matthew twenty two twenty nine. He says, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but all are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Of the living. Jesus is proclaiming that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are to go on living in resurrected form. They were long in the grave at this time. But he's the God of the living, not the dead. Now, of all things that can be said regarding our glorified bodies, the first and foremost is this, that our lowly bodies will be transformed just like His glorious body. That is the hope that we have. That is the hope. So like the Savior's bodies, our, our resurrection bodies will be real, physical, flesh and bone bodies. Perfectly engineered for a new heaven and a new earth. So this is not merely some spiritual rising. Some people teach that the resurrection is a spiritual resurrection, that it's not a physical resurrection. We read from, Mark read from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. And in that passage, you can read it later, it's a long chapter, but we see the resurrection of Christ as the prototype to the resurrection of the dead, those who are in Christ. The resurrection body, as well as the mystery and the victory over death. His resurrection takes the sting out of death. I've done funerals for many people, funerals for those who didn't know Christ, and you know that they did not repent before they died. Miserable to have to stand in this position and do that. Other than the fact that you give, to give the gospel and you have people's attention. Weddings are great, funerals are greater when it comes to the gospel. On the other hand, when you stand and officiate a funeral for someone who you know was saved by the grace of God, it's a celebration. There is sadness in the loss, amen? But it is a celebration. They've stepped in to the presence of Jesus Christ. Now some in Paul's days were saying that the resurrection had already passed. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 16, he said, Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. So they were trying to say it was a spiritual resurrection. And Paul condemns that view. Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead, first to be glorified, no longer subject to death. Jesus was sa resurrected in the same body, by the way. Not a new body, the same body was raised from the dead. And if he's the prototype, the body that you're in will be one day resurrected. Fit for heaven. And some teach that Jesus' resurrection... He possessed only a spiritual body and God caused him to be seen. 
with the physical eye. They'll take passages of Scripture such as John 20, where it says the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And after eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. So they say, well, if the doors were shut, it must have been a spiritual body, not a physical body. Now, it was a physical resurrected body. Jesus could enter in wherever. He's God. He can enter anywhere he wants. Physical or not, amen? In Luke 24, 31, it says, Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. So these critics attribute his appearing and disappearing to that of Jesus possessing only a spiritual body. So if people teach you that, you don't want to buy into that. This is a physical resurrection here. So in other words, they say that Jesus possessed a spiritual body which could be expressed in either a material or immaterial form. But if you remember, before his death, Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee, didn't he? In a physical body. He was transfigured before their very eyes. The Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured from flesh into glory. In Nazareth, when he went in to preach, and he preached out of Isaiah, and he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What did they do? They took him out to throw him off a cliff. And what did he do? He disappeared. He escaped. In Luke chapter 4, verse 30. So, the opponents here claim that these appearances were all non-physical. But there's no more reason for us to consider that Jesus' physical body became non-physical any more than we need to conclude that the disciples' bodies became non-physical as they walked through the guards and escaped prison in Acts chapter 5 or in Acts chapter 12. When Philip, right, remember the Ethiopian eunuch was passing through, coming out of Jerusalem, having come to worship God. He's reading from Isaiah. He didn't understand the text. The Holy Spirit leads him out there. He runs alongside the carriage. He says, what are you reading? Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? So he goes on and points out to this Ethiopian eunuch that that which he's reading, the fulfillment thereof was Jesus Christ. And what happened? After that, Philip was taken up and carried away by the Holy Spirit. Disappeared. Was he spiritual or physical? Physical. His risen body was a physical body, and he ate with it and he drank with it. Acts chapter 10, verse 40. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. You know, there's no record of any unbeliever witnessing the resurrected body of Christ. Even Jesus' own disciples were skeptical, right? In Luke chapter 24, 38, he said, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet. This is myself. Handle me, see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. This is a physical resurrection. Touch me, feel me, handle me. Look at my feet, look at my hands. So notice Jesus told them in their fear to touch him, handle him. 
And notice he said flesh and bones. Jesus did not say, look, I'm flesh and blood, as you see I have. He said, look, I'm flesh and bones, as you see I have. Now the Bible's clear, this is important. The Bible's, this is all important. <laughs> 35 minutes ago was important, and now is important. The Bible's clear that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, Amen. Mark read from it this morning, 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Now at the resurrection, if we're going to be like Christ, we're going to be flesh and bones and not flesh and blood. For you to live and for me to live, here and now, blood must be flowing through our body. If it stops, you will keel over in the lap of the person next to you. Amen? Life is in the blood. So there's evidently a difference between flesh and blood and flesh and, blown, and bones. Now it's interesting that the Bible says life is in the blood and without blood flowing through our bodies, we die. Now notice, Jesus Christ shed His blood that we may have what? Life. Christ shed His blood that we may have life abundantly and eternally and the hope of having a body fit for heaven. So in a glorified body, we do not need blood to flow in order to keep us going any more than we will need sunlight to sustain us because Jesus Christ himself is the light and the life. He's the light and he's the life. We will be flesh and bone just as he, will be flesh, just as he is flesh and bone in his resurrection. You know, cults, Hinduism, Buddhism, they teach that sin applies only to the body. And if you get rid of the body, you get rid of sin. Right? You ever heard that? You go read up on it, just talk to one of your Buddha friends or Hindu friends, and so long as you can... A salvation to them is an escaping of the body. Nirvana to them is to escape from the body, because it's ridden with sin. That's the exact opposite of what's taught in Christianity. Is salvation includes redemption of the body. When Adam and Eve sinned, it affected their spirit, their soul, and their body. The whole person suffered when they fell because they fell in every part. Therefore, for salvation to be complete, there must be full restoration to the spirit, the soul, and the body. If God created us like that and we're to live forever like that, then the redemptive work of Christ will provide that. Amen? Body, soul, and spirit. When God saves man, he's determined to save all of man, all of the individual. So when man was created, he was created in this triune fashion, body, soul, and spirit. When man sinned, each part fell. Each part came under the curse. Each part came under God's wrath. Genesis 2.17, the Lord God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of that, you will surely what? You will die. When man sinned, he died. He died spiritually when? Immediately, didn't he? Therefore, when God came in the cool of the day, what did he do? They hid from God. The relationship, the communion with God was broken. It was broken. They died spiritually. Spiritually, they hid from God. At that very moment, their 
soul began to die. You know, we see that deterioration through man's life. The older he gets, the more prone he is, the more prone she is to hide their sin. You, you, you can't really hide your sin when you're really little. It's just kind of out in the open, isn't it? But as you grow through the years, we learn to become more deceptive. We become manipulative in our behaviors. Secrets of our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Amen? So the soul of man begins to deteriorate. He becomes more and more, not only sinful, but more deceived in his sin. See it throughout time. We see it in our own lives until God regenerates us. Gives us spiritual life. When he gives you spiritual life, as you have if you're in Christ, you're a spiritual creature. You've been born again. You have life in Christ. Christ is in you. You have Christ's life in you. And then the soul is reformed as you continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. He's conforming you into what? Into His image. The moment you're born again, you're just a baby Christian. Your position in Christ is what? Perfect. Perfect. You'll never be more perfect in the sight of God positionally than the day that you were born again. But now our lifestyle... The way we live, the way we think, the way we talk changes over time as God continually conforms us, the soul of the man or woman, to Christ. So He does that rest, restorating work within the spirit. He does the restoring work within the soul. And then on the last day, He'll resurrect the body. Full salvation. Complete salvation. So when God saves men, He saves each part of the man by replacing each part of the man that has been lost. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when Christians die, their spirits go immediately into Christ's presence, for they are at home with the Lord. Their bodies remain here. They're buried in the grave. When Christ returns, He returns. The bodies of believers will be raised. The dead will be reunited with their spirits, becoming as He is, because your spirit is with Christ. 1 John Chapter 3 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be what? We shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this what? Hope in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. See, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. And without the anticipated expectation of His imminent return, believers will become complacent in their sanctification, won't they? You're a troublesome little kid and your dad's on a trip for two weeks. Day one, day two, day three, you give your mom a bunch of heck, don't you? Or didn't you? The closer dad's arrival comes, the more you straighten up. Amen? When my dad was gone, I had a tendency to give my mom more trouble. I certainly didn't give her the trouble when he was at home. But he was at work. It was a Saturday morning or whatever. It started out a little rambunctious. The closer it got to dad getting home, man, I just straightened right up. Same is true in the expectant, imminent return of Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit of God is working in us to make us holy. Be holy for I am holy, he said. It's his work that he's doing in us.
Praise be to God that we'll be like Him. Be completely changed. Although you'll be completely changed, your identity will be preserved. And every single person who's ever lived on planet Earth will be resurrected, some to eternal life, some to eternal torment. Jesus Himself said, do not marvel at this. Don't be amazed. Don't trip out. Everyone sitting here today, you're in one of two places. One of two categories. Your destiny will be determined by verse 25. Where are you in accordance to verse 25? That's the question. Have you been raised from spiritual deadness? Are you born again? Christians only die once. But they've been born twice. Amen? You were born physically. You came from your mama. You're in Christ. You were born again, whenever that was. Whether it was last week, five years ago, ten years ago, whenever it was, you were born twice, physically and spiritually. You're only going to die once. You're going to die physically. Unbelievers will rise once, but they'll die twice. They'll die physically, and they'll be cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's eternal death, separation from the, the blessed mercy and grace of God, only to face His everlasting wrath. Conscious torment, by the way. So, the truly saved sinner will die a physical death, but never a spiritual death. They'll experience a, a spiritual, they experience a spiritual resurrection, and then, because of that spiritual resurrection, they're granted a new nature. They no longer desire evil. They begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. If a person claims to be born again, they claim to have a new nature. If they have a new nature and they still lust after and desire all the things that they ever have in the past, they really need to examine themselves. There's never been a change in your bodily appetites, in your spiritual appetites. There's full reason to believe that you're not born again. Examine thyself to see if you're in the faith, Paul said. The unregenerate sinner, on the other hand, he dies physically, experiences physical resurrection at the judgment, and the second death being forever cut off from God. So that was point two, the recipients of judgment. Who is it? All of humanity. All of humanity. Now, all of humanity will not hear the voice of Jesus Christ while they live here on earth. Because they reject Him because they love darkness. But they will hear His voice in that coming hour. But the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice. And they will face one of two destinies in that sub-point number three. The two destinies of the judge. Verse 29. They will hear His voice and verse 29 and they will come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, the important thing to understand about the final judgment is that it will be a great public event. Some seem to think that the last judgment takes place every time a person dies. And there is a sense that when we go out of this world, that it is a significant event. And that's why if you've ever been at the bedside of someone who's in Christ, you know it's a significant event. They're entering in the presence of Christ. It's also a significant event if they don't know Christ, you know that they've entered into darkness. That's sad. So it's very significant. And that's due to the fact that our fate is sealed. If you're in Christ, your fate is sealed. It's everlasting life. 
But in the very end, when the dead will be raised, the bodies will be raised from the grave, every one will hear, regardless of what condition you died in. So there's going to be this final declaration of the eternal and final judgment of the executor of judgment, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose of the last judgment? The answer? The glory of God. The glory of God. It is the final declaration of the glory of God in the presence of those who've not given Him glory here on earth. The Bible says that the essence of sin is that it refuses to give God His glory. So the glory of God will be manifested not only in the salvation of those who belong to Him, but also in the punishment of those who have persisted in resisting Him. If you're resisting Him today, if you resist Him today, I urge you to repent before the living God. Call on Christ for His mercy. Call on Christ for His grace. The more you resist Him, the more callous you will become. Very, very dangerous place to be. The purpose of this final judgment is that God may be all in all. In other words, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit will be rightly glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. He'll be glorified in and through those who are saved by the finished work of His cross, and He'll be glorified in those who reject Him to the end. So all things remain subject to Christ because He's offered as the only, the only Savior of mankind. There's only one Savior offered, brothers and sisters, friends and family. One Savior is offered. It's Jesus Christ. No other road leads to God. No other road leads to heaven. Jesus is the only one who is a man as well as God. So the next question is, who's to be judged? Now it's argued here that the resurrection predicted does not include believers since they've already been raised spiritually. Some people say, well, they've already been raised spiritually, so this judgment does not pertain to believers. And they therefore do not come into judgment. They claim that only unbelievers are raised, and they're divided into two groups, those that have done good and those that have done evil. Well, if they're all sinners and they rejected Christ, who can do good? Amen? No one. So this doesn't cut it. This won't fly. Elsewhere in the Gospel, John draws a connection between those who experience spiritual life now and those who rise to live at the last day. John chapter 6, verse 40 and 54. John 6, verse 40 and 54. In John's Gospel, those who've done good, better, or good things are those who've come to the light. The good that you have on your account is the good works of who? Christ. That's the work. It's Christ's work on your account. And it's all by God's grace. On the other hand, those who've done evil, 
evil things. They love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. John chapter 3, verse 19. The former group have life already. The others are condemned already. But it's true. We see that Scripture teaches that God judges people based on their deeds because those deeds manifest the condition of the heart. And if you're in Christ, your desire is to honor and worship God through your life and lifestyle. Amen? It's not you earning salvation. It's a product of the salvation that's been birthed into you. And that's why you live like you live by the grace of God. Amen? Turn to Revelation as we wrap up. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 will begin in verse 11. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened. Another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. So here we have an object-subject distinction. The books are open. Why? Because God is just. He's not going to judge without the objective criteria. He's not going to judge without the facts. These books are obviously symbolic. In other words, the all-knowing God will reveal the hearts of all men. And the works of the unredeemed will be revealed. That which they've done, which is sinful and offense to God, and that which they haven't done for the glory of God. The books will be open. All of it's revealed. And therefore, there'll be no question in the mind of anyone to say, but, but, I didn't, I, I, I just didn't know. The books are opened, amen? There's your objective criteria. And that's, criteria is works. And we see that right here in John, chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Notice there's another book. Verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened. Now here's the subjective criteria. Which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now, the subjective criteria, the facts here in which their names, or which the condemnation comes, is the fact that their names are not in the Lamb's book of life. So they're judged according to their works. With an additional offense against them. And that is that their name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They're not covered by the blood of Christ. They never came to the light. They're condemned. And therefore, they're going to be judged by the perfect law of God. The perfect law of love. The Ten Commandments are the perfect law of love. The first four commandments are commandments to love God perfectly. The last six commandments are commandments to love mankind perfectly. Who can love God perfectly and who can love mankind perfectly? Nobody. That's the works in which people will be judged. That's why Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You can hang the law and the prophets on these two commandments. 
Jesus Christ came on your behalf and my behalf and he loved the Father perfectly in perfect obedience. He loved humanity in perfect obedience to the Father, upholding the law perfectly. And by your belief in him, by his grace upon your life, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, which was determined before the foundation of the earth. Go figure that out. And then let me know how that all works together. I'd appreciate it. This is just what it says. So good deeds reveal the presence or the absence of salvation. They do not produce it. Good works do not produce salvation. They're a product of salvation that has been granted by the work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the believer. Therefore, the world is condemned because they don't have the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in them. Their name's not in the book of life. So a life of good works, in other words, a righteous life is the effect of salvation and not the cause of it. That's grace. The perfect work of Christ on your behalf. Now if you're outside of Christ today, you will be judged for your works. You better be ready to stand. You're going to fall. So I plead with you to come to the cross today. Drop your pride. Drop your human self-righteous pride and fall at the cross. Because the epitome of self-righteousness is to think that you don't need Christ. You want justice? You'll get it. You don't want God's justice. Amen? You want mercy. You need mercy. The room, the majority of this room, I don't know who's saved and who's not saved, but the majority of this room is saved. This is the church. This is Christ's church. We're recipients of the grace of God. The perfect works of Christ. You remember Jesus warned, remember how all this started in John chapter 5 with Jesus healing this man? That's why he's in the middle of this discourse, claiming his deity and the power to judge in the end and all that. Remember what he said? Go back to John chapter 5, verse 14. The man that he healed, look what he said to him. Now remember, the man picked up his mat and he walked. He was confronted by the Pharisees. Jesus goes back into the temple and he, and he, and he stalks this man down and he approaches him. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Now evidently, the consequence of this man's condition was a product of his sin or his sinful life, sinful lifestyle. So he was in this condition because of that. Jesus said, See, you've been made well by the grace of Almighty God. See that you sin no more, lest something worse fall upon you. You know what worse, the worst thing is that could fall upon you? To be standing there and the resurrection of the dead, spiritually dead. He says, Stop sinning, lest something worse come upon you. The something worse is to stand before the Son of Man having personally received God's healing grace, having experienced the power of God. You know, many people experience the power of God. Many people experience the work of the Holy Spirit around their life that even overflows out of believers and touches their life and that they remain unbelievers. A man can receive the healing grace of God like this man and yet not change his lifestyle having seen the light, but never coming to the light. Coming to the light is to fully come to Christ. You can know the celebrities on TV and say, oh, I know Michael Jordan, I know all about him. I know Tiger Woods, I know all about him. Yeah, he's a great guy. We're boys. Tiger don't know you.
Because at the end, such a person will stand before Jesus Christ as judged. So John is not contrasting salvation by works with salvation by faith. Are we clear on that? He is not contrasting that. Because he goes on to say in the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 29, mark this, that the work of God is this. Want to know what the work of God is? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The one who's done the work. Christ. So when the judge of all the earth does what is right, men are condemned by the rightness of the only one, the only great, I am that I am. So, if you sit here today and you want justice, please, think again. You don't want justice. You don't want to be in the mindset thinking, well, I'll just, you know, my good is going to outweigh my bad. I'll just start doing better in life. You're already done. You're already condemned. You must repent. Call on Christ. Call on His mercy. Call on His grace. You won't be able to stand. On the other hand, brothers and sisters, I speak to you. If you've experienced verse 25 of chapter 5, you've been resurrected from spiritual deadness by the grace of God, the great I Am, you've been given new life in Christ, you'll never have to confront His justice. Jesus faced it for you. He took it. He received the wrath that was due to you and received the wrath that was due to me. That's what we can rejoice in. That, should that not drive us to live lives of holiness? Shouldn't that not be the driving force for us to proclaim the true gospel? Not some watered-down version of the gospel? To do it in love. I mean, the gospel's an offense, amen? It's going to offend. Your brothers and sisters will hate you. Your mom and dad may hate you. But Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. To separate father from son, mother from daughter, and so on. Amen? And pray. If we know that we have been saved by the works of Christ, may we be given to prayer, to pray on their behalf, that God would soften their hearts, draw them to Himself, and transform them. So because of this hope, I'll close with this. Mark read from it this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren. You're the beloved if you're in Christ. You're the brethren, the beloved brethren. Be steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The work of the Lord is difficult sometimes, amen? You will face trials and you will face tribulations. Yesterday was a very... A day full of trial for me. Full of trial. It was a very weird day. But at the end of the day, my wife and I sat down and said, Glory to God for all of those trials today. Because if you are in the army and you have an eternal perspective of life, you're going to face opposition. Spiritual opposition. That will manifest itself relationally oftentimes but you'll know you're in the heat of the battle, right? Remain steadfast. Because this is the hope we have, the imminent turn of Christ, the physical resurrection. But yet if you die tomorrow, to be absent from the body is to be 
present with the Lord. May it drive us to be evangelistic. To go to our loved ones with the truth. You really love people? You've got to tell them the truth. You don't want to slap someone on the back because they say Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've administered all judgment to your Son, the Son of Man, the giver of life is the Son of God. We thank you for your grace that you have granted each one of us who are in Christ. I pray that you will bless your church here this morning, bless those that are yours to be edified and built up, to have a very grand eternal perspective of life may every facet of their lives be blessed as they see your graceful hand touch their lives through and through may you give each one of us Lord a greater desire to pray on the behalf of those who don't yet know you and to know that when greater opposition and they, they faces them or they seem to rebel even more so when we're diligently praying for them maybe we be reminded that the battle's on but may we remain steadfast immovable for your glory knowing the work that's been accomplished on our part through the finished work of Christ and the hope that we have of the resurrection may we be as joyful to share such truth as if we had the cure for cancer to those we know dying of cancer so help us to be bold Grant us that grace, we pray, to be prayerful and mindful of edifying the church and reaching out to those who don't know you. And for anyone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move upon them, convict them of their sin, grant them the ability to repent. You would cause them to become children of the mighty God, we pray. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.